Hello there and welcome to Hungry. Hungry is the podcast for the next wave of challenger food and drink brands looking to pour gasoline all over their growth. Each week we'll interview successful founders, thought leaders, unpack their lessons and provide you with the toolkit to scale super fast. I am Dan Pope, I am your host and without further ado, let's get started. Hello there people and listeners of the Hungry Podcast. Today I'm beyond excited to welcome back Chris D to the podcast. Um, Chris was the former CEO of Booths and the ex-director of Food and Home at Harrods and is now the founder of Malt Release Radar. Um, this is the second time Chris is on the show and um, the, the kind of the main topics you want to explore today is, is five crucial lessons from Silicon Valley for challenger food and drink brands. Now, before we jump in, I want to kind of give a bit of context uh, as to how we got here. Um, so several weeks ago, Chris and I were having a really, really interesting um, conversation and it kind of went off piste into, into Silicon Valley and we were, were applying those lessons to food and drink brands. I just thought, oh my God, like, I need, if only this was a podcast, if only this was a podcast. So um, now it is, thankfully. Um, and Chris, thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great fun. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Um, so kind of ahead of, ahead of this, um, episode, Chris sent me some, some themes that we thought were really, really pertinent for food and drink brands. Um, and I do kind of feel like I'm riding a, a bit without stabilizers here. Cause I usually do lots of preparation kind of for the first couple of questions. Um, but the first thing Chris sent me left me with insatiable curiosity. And he said, a startup looks and fun- functions like a big company as much as a baby looks and functions like a fully grown adult. Now, I just think that's, there's so much to unpack there, if you will. Do you kind of want to touch upon that and explain what what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I think it's worth saying that I've spent most of my career in food and drink. um, And very much, as you said, on the the sort of retail and, and to a certain extent, manufacturing side. And actually, I've spent the last 12 months entirely embedded in the software industry, and I'm building um, uh, two bits of software, one, one that's sort of done and one that's in, in build at the moment. And I think that's given me a completely different perspective on the world. And I think I've had to find all sorts of lessons from software and startups in software, because that's what I'm doing now. Um, and as I've been doing that for myself, I've been thinking, oh, that's interesting. That really does apply in food and drink as well. And that's interesting. That applies to the sorts of people I often work with and advise who are starting up in the food business. So the sort of the parallels have become obvious. And as, as you said, when we when we talked last, um, it's an easy, they're, they're easy metaphors to use. And I think, I just think there's so much in all of this material around what could be done differently within, within startup world in, in food and drinks. So, um, the, the, where I want to start, we'll come back to the the baby, as it were. Yeah, sure, um, sure, sure. But, but just there's, a, there's an overall sort of overarching um, approach which people in Silicon Valley almost take for granted, actually, with a startup, which is that if you think of an inverted pyramid and you think about the tip of that pyramid being sort of your starting point as a business, um, and and it's all about focusing and constraining and limiting things down to something which is a which is a problem that you want to solve typically with software, um, and that you have to somehow get the flywheel spinning. You have to get the thing off the ground. You have to turn it into something real, but it but it's actually really limited in what you can do <clears throat> at that point. And the main reason for that is you just don't know the answers yet. 
You think you do, but you don't. And we'll come back to that. Once you've learned how to make it come to life, once you've found a way of, 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 of that sort of got the flywheel spinning, then it's about how do you grow it? How do you scale it? How do you build it out? And ultimately, how do you dominate um, the, the sort of the market or the problem or the category that you sit in? <clears throat> and and it's a combination of those steps really that get you to the point where you've where you've got a fully functioning sort of adult business as it were. So just just in terms of in terms of the that, that so if we if we start off right at the tip of that um, that pyramid at the bottom, and we think about what a startup looks like in its early days, and how that um, applies to a food and drink startup, and the and the and the, and the metaphor is simple, which is that. Basically, a baby has all the basic functions in place. It has all its senses. It can breathe and it can sort of digest and create, you know, energy for itself. But beyond that, actually, it doesn't really have much function other than that which is given to it by outsiders and help and support. So, you know, whereas an adult clearly has everything in place and, you know, and and hopefully functions um, perfectly. And and in and in simple terms, that's what you're talking about with startups. So startups, when you look at them in the early days, do not look like what they turn into. They look they might have the kernels of some elements of what they become, but actually to begin with, they look very very different and they function very differently. And and you know if if we th- and, and the big danger for all startup founders is that they think they need to be a big company quickly. They need they think that they can get to being the adult without having been an infant, without having been a teenager, et cetera, et cetera. So that's hence the metaphor. So big companies that have, you know, HR departments, marketing departments, finance departments, manufacturing operations, IT, legal, procurement, all those sort of elements that you think you need to have are just so unimportant to a startup, just like all the, you know, the, the, the features of an adult are so unimportant to a baby. And that's that's the metaphor. So... I think, you know, for a startup, what you really need in food and drink is you need to have two things really in place that are absolutely key. Preferably, you make something and, that, you know, even that, as we know, could be done by someone else, but preferably you do it yourself. And, and absolutely, definitely, you have to sell something. So making and selling become the sort of key core functions that you absolutely can't live without. And then everything else, if you need it in different forms at different points, you can sort of buy in or you can get support or you just have to find a way of delivering. Um, but you, what, what you don't need is a big team. What you don't need is loads of departments. What you don't need is loads of heads of and directors and all sorts of other things. What you probably need is a co-founder who does everything that you don't do brilliantly. So it's just like there's a yin and yang going on. But that's that's what that's all about. And I think... Um, you know, there's so many um, things to say around around that growth phase. So starting off, you know, say at the peak, um, that that that's probably the next step. The next, um, I know what's what's coming up as the next question. So I'll I'll, I'll go into it then. Yeah. So I just I think um, that's really really interesting, and we're kind of I suppose Manny Life now is at the toddler stage, if you kind of want to call it that, whereby we've you know I've been this super early days when we were. A, a toddler, uh, sorry, a baby having no idea what we're doing, but that kind of naivety is the strength in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you say is 
is the point at when at which a business knows that they need to start adding these say potentially more corporate or adult features because i think as as you say brands do obsess with oh my god we need growth 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 we need x y and z is there, is there like a particular tipping point you 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 think it gets to or well, I, th- I mean, the one one of the things I was going to talk about is the need to understand the constraining the problem bit, because I think, again, a lot of food and drink startups sort of think that they need to get distributed. So, you know, let's face it, in the end, food and drink is about distribution and, and distribution wins. But what everybody does is is get themselves into a massive rush to get there quickly. And my view is actually more time spent at the early stage getting it right. And, you know, and the way that that plays out is in, in a really strong rate of sale on a small number of SKUs. In a, you know, it might even be in a single shop. But in principle, getting, getting to the point where you absolutely understand what you have to do in order to make it work, the scaling out and getting and then driving the channels and driving the distribution is clearly going to involve more people and more more um, more structure, um, but in in principle, most startups try and do that before they've really learned the lessons of what works, mm. and that's that's kind of the the big lesson in Silicon Valley, is 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 a really simple one, but it's make something people want, don't make people want something. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And if you think about most food and drink startups, start with something and then they try and make people want it, whether that's a supermarket buyer or whether that's a consumer. So it's all about marketing. It's all about selling into, into to get listings. Whereas actually, if you made something people want, it will be flying off the shelves. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you now that if something's flying off the shelves, it flies off the shelves everywhere because everybody wants it. And buyers will be knocking on your door rather than you knocking on theirs. So there's a whole there's a whole approach there which I just think is wrong. And therefore, actually, you know, going back to the question, how do you know? You just know because you get to what's called product market fit. You get to a point where actually, you know, people are banging the, your door down. They're clambering for your product, mm. and they and it's a success because and that, and at that point you've got to then pull fuel on the fire and you've got to make the whole thing work and scale. But that's the second stage of the pyramid. And that's not what most startups are at at all. Most startups are still meandering around, not knowing what they're doing, not realizing what's going to work and what's not. And there's there's so much um like stuff we can unpack there. So I think the first the first thing is so when you said make something and make then make something people want how how do you do that like how do you know people want it like because i so i just is that's the i suppose the million dollar question right is how do you know make something people want so what's one of the things i've mentioned to you previously is is this sort of thing around skiing so i'll mention it now but startups are as unnatural as skiing is yeah so um what you've got to do is resist your instincts as a startup founder, if you think about skiing, you know, it, the very first time anyone went skiing or snowboarding for that, for that matter, you know, there, there, are, there are things you do instinctively to slow yourself down, to stop yourself falling over, which are absolutely totally the wrong thing to do. So leaning forwards rather than lean, leaning backwards rather than leaning forwards to slow down, things like that, which just, you know, everything goes in the opposite direction. And and that's the reason by the you know whereas running you could put on a pair of trainers and go running and pretty much get there quite quickly and that's why there are so many more ski instructors than there are running instructors in the world. Yeah, yeah. 
And startups is the same as skiing. So startups, there are so many things you think you know when you start out that you so clearly don't. So you think you know what product, you think you know what flavors, you think you know what pack size, what packaging, what pricing, what channels you should be in, what customers you should be aiming at, what consumers you should be targeting, what messaging you should be putting into your marketing. You know, there's so many things that you set out with a, you know, with a view on, with an idea. The chances are you don't know any of them, any of them at all. So you've got to find ways of iterating through all those different questions to find the right answers. And the way to do that is to test, 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 test. Find ways of getting a response, you know, whether that be um, just to hold, you know, things around trade fairs, not trade fairs as much as consumer fairs, but getting out there and getting the product live, changing it over and over and over again until you've tweaked it to the point where it actually does you know, the responses you're getting are so strong that you know you've got something right. And that that's what that's this whole notion of product market fit. That's the notion that actually people will make it abundantly clear to you that you've got it right. There is a there is a there's a survey question actually, <clears throat> and I've come out of a world where NPS is massive, so net promoter score, where you're asked whether you would um, recommend um, a particular brand to friends and family, and there's a score between minus hundred and plus hundred and everything in between. Actually, there's a different way of finding out whether you've got product market fit. And it's a really simple question, but you could ask it, um, you only have to ask the one question, and is how would you feel if you could no longer purchase product X? Mm. And the responses are very disappointed, somewhat disappointed or not disappointed. And until you get over 40% of the response to be very disappointed, you've not got product market fit. So in really simple terms, you need people to be absolutely, you know, overwhelmingly upset and disappointed that they can't buy your product anymore, something that they've already bought. So you're talking to people who already buy and you're talking to them about how they would feel if it was no longer available. And that's the sort it's almost like an emotional response. And if you get that emotional response up north of 40%, chances are you found something that people really want. Mm. And at that point, and only at that point, Will you really be in a position to sort of move on to that next stage? And I think this is this is the problem: is pe- people in the startup world in food and drink typically take their very first product and then try and make people want it. Mm. It's like mm. the first try, you know. And I, loads of brands. And look, I'm not saying that everyone fails, but lots of people fail. And it's far better to actually say what we'll do is we'll we'll just have you know 27 versions. And we'll we'll test each one and we'll see what the response is and we'll tweak and tweak and tweak the product, we'll tweak and tweak and tweak the packaging, we'll tweak and tweak the messaging, you know, we'll 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 put it in a um deli and we'll put it in a farm shop and we'll put it in a supermarket independent supermarket somewhere, we'll put it we'll put it into lots of different settings, we'll put it alongside things, we'll move its cat, we'll move where it sits on the shelf. All those things have to be experimented with, and only then will you really know what your sort of playbook for success is going to be. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because people almost get blinded by the big the big listings and they 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 see distribution distribution which is as you said rightly said at the beginning distribution if you is you win fundamentally. But yeah. get getting the distribution is literally a sliver of the battle versus actually driving that rate of sale and I think yeah. lots of listeners no, should Sorry, the only, the only thing I would say is you know as you know the only way you keep the distribution is the rate of sale. So it's all exactly. right. You know, you can always 
fool someone once and, and maybe get a listing, but un unless it deserves its place, it will always disappear. And actually, if it does better than deserve its face, a space, it will always get you. You know, NPD will get listed. You'll you'll have you'll have additional incremental benefits from having strong rate of sale on on the products you've got. But if you can't prove yourself, particularly as a new brand, if you can't prove yourself in that ar arena, then it's never going to succeed. However good you are at getting a foot in the door and getting that first listing, you know, with a with a supermarket chain. So my advice is actually to focus on demonstrating rate of sale in a relatively benign environment rather than a supermarket chain. Whereas if it goes wrong, you know, it's a very public humiliation if you're delisted from a big grocer, you know, and all the others are watching all the time for these these events. So, you know, so actually making your rate of sale really strong, you know, and 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 I remember in, in the history of Money Life, you know, Stu did this with, there was a deli, I think in Wimbledon from memory, Mm -hmm. where it just flew off the shelves and he was able to prove a really strong rate of sale. And that's what got the original sort of early, you know, national listings was, was that he knew what to do with it and he'd, he'd proven that it worked. And I think, I think this is the, the, those, those lessons and knowing when is, is the, is the real art. But I think, you know, in, in, in really simple terms, you're going to be pushing a boulder uphill for some time, but by the point when you get to the top, you absolutely understand what it takes to make that product really sell in any in in the right environment in the right way, mm -hmm. and suddenly the boulder's falling down the hill the other side, and you're having to keep up, and that's mm -hmm. a great place to be, yeah. and that's the mm -hmm. stage you know where it does all go a bit bonkers, but that's when that's when the supermarket buyers come come asking rather than you going begging. And I think I, I speak to lots of listeners of this podcast, and I think they they get blinded by the the X factor big listings and it's I, I think that what you've said there is so reassuring it's like no you can take your time and actually going you know slower to begin with you will hit that point as, as you say as you you kind of traverse traverse the hill and you, you get loads of momentum and we're going through that now um kind of one thing I did want to uh, touch upon which is um which is the idea of it kind of contrary to what you're saying is is you know test lots of different channels test lots of iterations um, one thing I found at the early stages of money life is that can bleed quite quickly into a lack of focus. So, it's, you know, so for example, for me, I was, um, flying around the country in a Peugeot trying to get listed in, in lo loads of, you know, farm shops, etc. And, you know, looking back, that was just a complete waste of energy and, and, and time. And I think, um, what'd be good to explore is, is how to test lots of things, but how to also not bleed it into a complete Casio focus, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think what, what you're doing there is you're trying to scale. What you've just described is trying to scale. It's, it's scaling, you know, geographically in, in that sense. So my, my advice is to constrain, constrain what you're doing by geography to a point. So just focus on your neighborhood, focus on, or, or focus on a, what you think is a relevant geography and focus on a relatively small number of customers and focus on really making it work for those customers. And for me, that's about you know doing things that don't scale. So it's the opposite of scaling. Mm. Do things that don't scale. You know, there's, there's a great story in in the tech world about how Airbnb got off the ground, um, and and Brian Chesky, who's, who's one of the founders, you know, tells this story about how 
in the early days, they just, they really, really struggled. It took like two or three years to get any sort of momentum, any sort of um, um, traction. And he said the thing that unlocked it was doing something which clearly was never going to work at scale. But in principle, they realized that when someone, um, when, when one of their hosts took really nice photographs of the, of the, the apartment or the, or the house, you know, the bookings went through the roof. And it was just like, actually, what we need is, all we're going to have to do is train all our hosts to be great photographers and all this. It's like, or we're going to have to pay for a professional photographer to go around and see it. No, no, let's go and do that ourselves. We're, you know, they're all from a design background, the founders of Airbnb. Let's, let's go and take amazing photographs of all the apartments in New York that are currently on Airbnb. And they did that. They spent time with the, the, the hosts and got to know them and understand all sorts of issues with the software and all sorts of things that they hadn't realized. So they got to know their, their, their customers in that sense. And equally, they, they took these amazing professional photographs, which could never be done at scale, but they learned so much and they realized that actually this was one of the keys to success. And that photography was that sort of hidden, hidden um, uh, silver bullet for them almost. And, and you've got to, and they ultimately, by the way, they then do hire professional photographers to do it. So they found a way of scaling it. But to begin with, they just thought they couldn't. Mm. That's what you've got to do as a, a founder of a, of a food business as well. You, basically, you've got to hand, you know, my, my advice would be handcraft the product. So make it in a small scale kitchen of some sort. That means you can iterate through and you can do lots of different versions. You know, hand apply the labels, find ways of personalizing it, find ways of making it um, uh, available early. So get that response. So give samples out, get feedback you know, do events, ask, ask, ask why all the time from both, both trade customers and, and consumers find out what really matters to these, to, to, the, to all, all your, your potential, you know, customers, <clears throat> but do it in a way that is, is, is localized and, and, and constrained because actually you, there's no point, there's no point driving around the country in a Peugeot <laughs> if, if you don't know the solution. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> um but that's that's the thing isn't it is you you the focus is really about you know it's, so the classic way of describing it is but you know think about boiling a thimble don't try and boil the ocean you know what you want is this little crucible white hot crucible of success which you then look to scale out rather than thinking that it's all about the big listing or it's all about or it's all about you know getting it nation, nationwide or whatever there's there's time for all that and you only really can do that when you've got that success um behind you and you know what to do and it's what you've got to think is that the, the early stages are all about learning which is not how you know this going back to the skiing analogy it's it's actually you're going to have to you're going to have to learn some stuff that is not instinctive it doesn't come naturally it goes against everything you might think or feel but what you'll find is that if you get it right for customers that their response ultimately will will reward you, you know, and the scale will come more naturally. What what are the common sort of in, instincts or bad instincts founders fall upon at the beginning? Is would you, would you say all sorts of stuff? But you know, using think, thinking that 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 size matters, thinking that 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 on one level brand really matters thinking that purpose matters more than a product that people want to go eat or drink. Mm. You know, all those things, which I think is you know, a classic 
that ultimately those things do matter, but they don't matter to begin with. They matter when you're an adult, not when you're a baby. It's so interesting. And that we, there was a bit of a debate around one of the posts I did the other day on LinkedIn. I don't know if you've heard the um, Start With Why um, by cool. Simon Sinek, I think it is. Yeah. And and there was a, someone said, oh, product should come first. And once you've built that, when, when you're a baby, per se, you know, that's got to be important. And then as you go to an adult, that's when you can kind of look through the lens and start with why, as you, as you say, as you take on these more adult functions whereas i think that i personally think that the idea of start with why when you're when you're when you're a bubber you're a baby and you've got no idea what you know you can't even feed yourself per se through the metaphor yeah that's so interesting i hadn't thought of it like that um and also i suppose if you're making a product then that's your kind of your intellectual property as well so it makes it makes you kind of defensible against competitors yeah, and look, I, there are there are great examples as we as we both know of, of challenger brands that have never made anything uh, themselves ever, um, and and it's a way through. I just think there's something about making it and and understanding it inside out through through the the, the action of making, and and also just the freedom it gives you and the flexibility it gives you to to change it. Um, that really matters. And I think the trouble is that if you have to go and, you know, in order for someone else to make it, typically you've got to find an economic order quantity that that, that meets their expectation mm. to do it. Mm. And once you're into that, you're into how do I find people look to, to sell this to rather than how do I find something that people want. Mm. So it, it it doesn't it doesn't bode well for experimentation if you're working with a major manufacturer. And the reason you're working with a major manufacturer is because you think that you have to scale. Because ultimately, you might have to work with a major manufacturer. But I, I tell you now, it's far better to go with a decent-sized contract to them knowing that you can sell and knowing that you've got people queuing up to buy than it is to go and think, right, shit, if this all arrives, I've got to somehow sell it all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I do think that that starting by making yourself, starting by understanding the processes you know, inside out. You know, and, and and what's interesting then is that some of those processes you might have to retain, which aren't easily scalable. But you know, I've I've I worked way back with a um, a business called Farmhouse Fair that was a sticky toffee pudding manufacturer in Clitheroe in Lancashire, and they um, had uh, they eventually sold to Daniel's Foods, but they started by making sticky toffee puddings in a small oven, um, hand everything handmade. And basically, um, the founder took the view as they grew and grew and grew, and they did, that they just needed more and more small ovens. So she had banks and banks and banks of little ovens because she mm. believed it massively made a difference. And the moment they put them into great big industrial ovens, the process was ruined. So, you know, there are things you can do which might seem slightly, again, counterintuitive, but actually, you know, you can scale in, in by, by multiplying rather than by, by, by enlarging. So... Yeah, there are all sorts of things that you learn in those early days of making that ultimately serve you well, I think. Mm-hmm. No, that's so interesting. And kind of what we talked about prior to, to going on air, oh, that sounds really <laughs> Jonathan Ross-esque, apologies. <laughs> but in the um, green room. What, 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 yeah, in the green room, what you said about, you know, set, it, lots of founders try and bring up their weaknesses and you're talking about you know celebrating successes and doubling down and i think that um that oven with a sticky toffee pudding it's like loads of small ovens it's like when you when you become okay and sort of relinquish your ego to scale to begin with you find these 
amazing kind of scenarios where where it becomes your competitive advantage. Yeah, and I think that again, the danger that lots of so so the lessons in all this. So when you're learning and you're iterating, you're doing is 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 understand what works and understand the successes, and and often they're quite surprising what those successes are. Um, and I think you know uh, the question I ask all all founders all the time is what you know what have you discovered recently that surprised you has been mm-hmm. your po- positive things that have surprised you things that you didn't expect to work that worked because it's so much easier to learn from those and take them forwards and build on them than it is to find out all the things you know and let's face it you're going to have a hundred ninety nine things that don't work and, and one that does mm-hmm. take the one thing and build on it and double down as you say. Don't try and find ways of propping up all those weaknesses where things haven't worked. It's like just learn that actually when success happens, there's something in it. It means that you're making something people want. And therefore, you've got to then sort of like, okay, so if that's actually what I'm about, even though I thought I was over here, I'm now over here. Mm. Actually, I've got to then turn that into us. I've got to build on that and scale that, not somehow change this a little bit more in order to make it closer to what I wanted it to be. Because again, I think ego gets in the way of all of this. And that's, mm. again, you know, we all need egos. We've all got them. But but for founders, the great danger is that they fall in love with their own product. They fall in love with their own brand. They fall in love with all sorts of things that they've created mm. that they can't then accept that the world doesn't want. Are there any examples? Because, you know, you work with Lucy's Dressings, that, the skier brand is there any examples of surprising successes um with some of the brands you've worked with where they have then gone and, and doubled down on that there is but i i'm not going to go into those specific companies but there is a, there's someone i was i was talking to the other day who runs um uh, an interesting fast food uh, business which is, is it has multiple outlets and is a genuine sort of challenger brand in 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 the world of fast food and he was talking to me about um, the amazing difference that photography had made when he'd done, he, he basically got the, the the guys who had taken the pictures for McDonald's to take his do his photography for for his fast food restaurant, and he just said it literally doubled their sales. Mm. And you know, and what was there already was good; it wasn't like it was really badly done. It's just like he just said, I can't believe the impact of having. Interestingly, given the Airbnb example earlier, professional photography yeah, done yeah, in a yeah. The way and he said you know it's just amazing how you know he said and and it cost i think it cost him 14 grand and it was like you know everyone was questioning why he was doing this didn't think it was a great um use of of, of limited resource etc cetera, etc cetera. and it was just like this has made all the difference in the world and it's transformed this business from from being unprofitable to being profitable and i would never have thought so so it's things like that it's not necessarily it's not necessarily the big things. It can be the small things. And it's just like, okay, so that actually suddenly it changed. You know, in that case, I think we, we, we talked about it, but it basically just, it just made him, it made people feel more secure buying from him simply mm. because they, they recognize some degree of quality that you couldn't, mm. you know, you couldn't articulate, but somehow these photographs made them feel more reassured and, and could buy from him. Hi there, guys, and thank you so, so much for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying it, and I hope you're getting lots of value from it. So since this Momo Kombucha partnership booted off, um, and it's really, really helping scale the podcast, lots of people ask me, like, where did Momo start? What is the, the genesis of Momo Kombucha? Well, like all great stories, it started with love uh, in a European city, specifically Berlin, uh, where Josh met his wife, Lisa, at a music festival. 
pre-music festival, Josh was working in the city as an equity analyst, Lisa as European marketing manager and as a porter. They both had this kind of insatiable itch that needed scratching, this kind of kombucha calling. And they ditched their jobs in the city, ended up making Momo from their, their home in southeast London near Brixton. Now, what I love about Momo is they took the hard route, right? They could have gone, they took the path of most resistance. They could have outsourced it to a manufacturer, scaled faster. But what they've done is they've decided to make it in their own home, then from a small brewery in Vauxhall. And what that does, is that creates a, well, supply chain, which creates the consistency of product. And that's why the product is so, so delicious. They've got complete control over the taste. And taste in this game, as all guests say on this podcast, taste is the number one factor building a great great brand um if you want a slice or should i say a sip of the momo madness go grab some at selfridges planet organic or whole foods market and thank you so so much for listening to this i really do appreciate it i'm just kind of thinking from a founder's point of view do you to, to sort of cultivate this surprising successes kind of mantra i suppose or, or literal thing is do you think founders should be stopping on a monthly basis and sort of reflecting and saying okay what's what surprises this month and then how can we and once you've found that surprise what's the next step in terms of um like pushing it harder if that makes sense yeah i i, I mean i think so i mean I'm, I'm not a big i'm not big into those sorts of almost routine approaches to things i think i think stop and think sometimes and and mm. reflect and don't just I suppose what I know is that most people spend most of their time worrying about what they're rubbish at. Most people focus their energies on improvement, on trying to be better at certain things. And it takes an enormous amount of energy to try and be better at something. It takes a lot less energy to actually take the thing you're already good at and run with it and do it even better. Everyone's quite, by the way, people are typically self-critical about their own strengths. So if you think about the thing that you think think you're rubbish at you're actually probably quite good at it mm. there's a sort of an inbuilt need to sort of almost demonstrate that you're not as good as you ought to be because and that's what drives you forward and that's what you genuinely makes you good at, at personality level i think one of the things that's interesting in software is that you can because you can iterate so quickly and because you can just drive change you know on a website or in an app so quickly I think it just it, it gives you permission to to make those changes and get on with it. I think within I think as as you grow in a, as a food business, certain things get switched off to you in terms of what you can change and how much you can iterate. And that's why I'm, that's why I'm so keen that people do so much of it in the early days mm. because actually you know it's you start you start sort of losing that ability to be flexible and agile because you've got existing customers with existing contracts with existing product you know you've you've invested in an existing brand or you know, it's just it all becomes more and more difficult and you start sort of walking through treacle so what i'm saying is start start with all the iterations early on learn a huge amount from that and turn it into something which you know is a success and then as you go through the next stages you know where you see more success keep on building on it and you know, in software terms, that's, that's you know, things like viral loops and growth loops and all sorts of mm. things that you can do to sort of almost start structurally building in success into your into your business model. Um, it's less easy with with food and drink. Now that's that's so interesting. I think um, kind of where I want to go next is is this for listeners. Um, make something people want is a, is an essay by um, Paul Graham, who's the founder of 
Y Combinator. Um, and they've done, I mean, they've built business Airbnb, Reddit, Dropbox. Um, it's kind of like an incubator, incubator for brands. Um, and I've taken a quote from, from that essay that I'd kind of want to uh, explore. And it says, the very best startup ideas tend to have three, kings in com- three things in common. There's something the founders themselves want that they, they themselves can build and that few others realize are worth doing. Microsoft, Apple, Yahoo, Google, and Facebook all began this way. Um, and it's the, it's the f- uh, few others realize are worth doing is that I kind of want, I want to latch onto um, because lots of founders may be creating a product um, that few others realize are worth doing, if that makes sense. So it could be, you know, oat, oat milk uh, back in 2000 or kombucha. Um, now, when you're building, creating something that, no one really knows about it can be very hard to to market that product if people don't really get it per se um if you are a, a brand that is trying to challenge the status quo and create something completely new how do you think you should go about marketing it or like what are the sticking points okay so i think this whole idea of 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 going you know zigging when everyone else is zigging in in general i think is is a, is a great thing to do and one of the things that's that's fascinated me in in the last few years is is actually the notion of challenger brand. I'm not as convinced as the rest of the world that that, that challenger brands is such a great place to be. You know, the world doesn't need um, always to be set up against a big brand. So if you think about the nature of challenger, and we think about um, I don't know. Uh, it's a good example in that non non food world is something like Swatch as a brand against the rest of the Swiss watch industry, which is all about precision and all about um, um, quality and all about, you know, mm. sort of, uh, uh, you know, Swatch was this disposable um, plastic timepiece, but was fashionable and and was thought of in a very different way. It's a proper sort of challenger brand situation. Whether Fever Tree and Schweppes is the same thing, I'm not entirely convinced of. I get that Fever Tree's done incredibly well, and I get that they're a very successful business and a very successful brand, but mm. so is Schweppes and remains so. And to a certain extent, you know, lots of lots of small startups in food sort of see that Fever Tree example and think that oh, we've got to be the equivalent of the Fever Tree for our category. I I I think there's there's an approach which is to think about is try and it's almost try and be in a category of one, try and create a category that didn't exist. And you know, the examples you gave are good ones, which I think oat milk or kombucha for the, for the early players w- were things that were genuinely, you know, not there, just didn't exist in 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 supermarket sort of existing structure stru- category structures or Nielsen data or whatever it is. And I think being in that category of one just gives you the opportunity to to, to ultimately dominate in a way that you will never do if you go in fighting either a big brand or, or a whole host of small brands. And look, there are categories which are massively crowded out now. You know, I do always worry if I get someone who wants to talk to me about, you know, that we've, we've come up with an idea for a, for a new craft gin or a craft beer or a new energy bar, or for that matter, a new kombucha. You know, it's just like actually some of these spaces are so crowded that you're just never going never gonna to cut through and succeed. What I'm really interested in is startups that have, you know, found something which is a genuine niche. And there is a there is a test here, which is yes, there is a gap in the market. Mm. Is there a market in the gap? Is the question you should be asking yourself. So, yeah. is there a market, and how big is that potential market? 
and how much do you have to change the world around you to make that market come to life? I think I think you know as, as Paul Graham said, yeah. If and I'll take Airbnb again as an example. Nobody believed that people would rent out their homes to to strangers. You know, and the original idea, by the way, was that literally it was a it was an airbed. In fact, you couldn't you couldn't rent anything but an airbed in an Airbnb in the early days, even to the point where people had to put airbeds on top of beds if they didn't have the space on the floor for the airbed. It was just crazy. So, you know, and, and nobody could see that that was going to turn into a multi-billion dollar um, business or, a, or, or that the market that was sort of was sat there not knowing it existed could ever exist. So the idea that you and I might see ourselves as hosts in our own homes or in, in second homes or whatever, just, just nobody believed it could happen. So that's a great example of it being massively counterintuitive, you know, and you're swimming against the tide. You know, what, what are the equivalents of that in the food world? And I don't know the answer, but I know that people who seek out those answers are more likely to get the big profitable success in the end than those that just seek to swim in the same sort of sea full of blood from sharks, you mm. know, in a category where it's dominated by some big players and a whole host of secondary players as well. No, it's so interesting. And I've, kind of got to give her a shout out here. My good friend, Amelia, she's got a, uh, it's kind of almost done everything you've, you've, uh, you've said essentially. So she's, she's taking on, uh, or creating beans, essentially beans are quite, uh, uh, not boring category. That's probably too strong a word, but what she's, she did is she had this idea for this bean company. She created a closed, um, Instagram page and had like a list of like, here's a hundred names pick the name and it ended up being the bold bean co and then she said here's you know i think it was six different iterations of 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 um of packaging and we were like okay yeah. she was like what label do you want and then, you know you're just literally clicking voting 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 and it started with like literally 100 followers i think and now she's got about 2000 um and just iterate 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 and to be honest i was just thinking i kept saying to her like just just take it to market take it to market which is probably just my you know try and do things a million t- miles per hour but by doing that, she's now got a listing at Planet Organic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is a great, which is, a, you know, it's, it's a great example of, of just taking your time and, you know, relinquishing your ego to, I need to get into a Sainsbury's or I need to get into Carp, I need to get into a booth and just being okay with, with, with being small, I think. Yeah. And look, I mean, there's, there's also, a, you know, there comes a point where you don't want to be designed by committee and you don't want it to all just be voting buttons as it were. But I think, I think that, Inevitably, if you take some of that approach, you need to mix those approaches. That's, I mean, to be fair, I, it, it sounds like the perfect approach. I'm sure she'll do well. You know, the, the fact is that there's so many lessons to learn. You know, once you're in Planet Organic and you and you and you've got the product on the shelf, what do you then have to do? Mm. And it, you know, it, it, and yeah, and my advice to her would be spend a lot of time in Planet Organic, spend a lot of time talking to people at the fixture who don't necessarily buy what she what she sells or spend a lot of time talking to people who do buy mm, her product mm. and understand why, understand what differences, you know, it's, it's all those nuances, understanding your customers and, 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 and consumers is so important to getting the answers right that, that you just have, you, you have to suppress your own position constantly but when you do, and when you get to the point where you really know, because you've spoken to so many people and you hear the same story and you hear the same words repeated and you hear the same messages and you know what resonates and you know how to make it come to life, you know, the world is your oyster. And I think that's where it becomes really interesting. 
And that's where actually having a really strong hurry up driver like you have, you know, and, a, and a, an absolute, you know, um, uh, need to speed things up and to drive really hard becomes invaluable as well. So as a, as a founder, you can't, you can't just get to the beginning, you can't get to the end of that beginning stage and not mm. take it. You've got to take it all the way through to being, you know, the world's biggest bean company or whatever she, wherever, mm, wherever mm, she mm. Mm. No, that's so interesting. It's so interesting. And and do you um, kind of want to go back to what you said about um, uh, Zig versus Zag? I think that's very interesting. I've, I've just made a note of that. And, you know, you, you, you said you wouldn't invest in potentially a kombucha brand or, or although you just did a, a, a pitch from another energy bar, is yeah. it, it kind of loses its weight because it's just so filled with competition. Say you are one of these brands and you've created it is um, unfortunately lots of listeners are wedded to their little baby. It's it's, they see it as a baby and it's quite an interesting theme throughout this. And you are in a, in a crowded, um, crowded category. How do you, how do you zig? Like, do you, when, when everyone is zagging, do you change the taste or like, do you change the format? Do you change? I'm just trying to think like how, if you are going into a crowded category, how yeah, can you, you can own- you clearly you can change, you can change all, all elements. And we talked, we talked about all the different things. So, you know, so assuming that you've got to a point where you've got a product and, and you happen to be in a category that's, yeah, you know, there's a great example. I worked with um, Piper's crisps before they were sold to PepsiCo and, and Piper's is an amazing story of a, a business, which basically grew up to be about, approximately about 20 million pounds of resale sales without being in any supermarkets. And that's, and that's because they were dedicated to selling small what called grab bags in, in the crisp world rather than sharing packs. So not the big, not the big bags or the multi-packs, but just simple single mm. grab bags of crisps, mainly in pubs and in food service. And they hammered away at that for the best part of 15 years and they grew to be a big and profitable business. And then actually all that multiple grocer growth was potentially still ahead of them. And all they did was find a different channel and use a different channel to, to grow the business. And clearly these days, you know, equally a direct consumer channel or some, something which just means that you're not, if, if you are in a crowded market, you know, don't go where the crowd is, go, go where they're not and find a way in to a different sort of customer or a different consumer or, you know, you just got to find yourself a niche in some other way. And, you know, it becomes more and more restrictive, as I said, as you grow and as you become a more, you know, sort of um, mature business, it's more and more difficult to make those zags when the world is zigging. Mm. So Mm. the earlier you do it and the the sooner you find out that you can make a success in, in, in unexpected ways. And I think so. It's almost you can also go. You can also go niche in the way you, in terms of channel strategy, doesn't also always have to be product. I think um, Mark Palmer, from who was a previous guest from here, was saying that um, Green and Blacks did the same thing at the beginning. They just focused heavily on speciality. Um, yeah. And health, health food shops originally weren't they? Yeah, re- originally, but he came on and one of the channels they really owned. And I think that's something I hadn't really thought about, and that's why I love doing these podcasts because you kind of gives you some time to think and you know those farm shops at the beginning which was i thought was a complete bloody waste of time we've actually got a pretty strong presence in them now because uh, i was doing all the you know the the um or f- strong presence and speciality um 
Yeah, that's so interesting. And and another great example of that, by the way, using farm shops was is a I don't know whether you know Cook, the frozen food retailer. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Who have you know apart, apart from their own stores, which which have been a success, you know, most of their growth has come out of the farm shop sector. Um, and they've you know because farm shops are looking to put a frozen range in, they don't want the capex of a freezer, but Cook are willing to put that freezer in and give them the sort of tools to do their job. And, and there's no big brand in, in frozen food that covers that's multi-category in frozen food. You've got brands in each of the different areas, whether that's ice cream or chips or peas, but actually there's no brand that goes across all of them. So Cook were able to deliver a solution to a farm shop that said, look, here's a high quality, multi-category solution for frozen food, which by the way, is just like selling ambient food, but it's colder. You know, it has all the same characteristics, it's long life, it, you know, it works in the same way. And I think that 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 you know that's a great example of zigging, not zagging. Mm. And you know, whereas if they go and approach a supermarket business with that proposition, they're going to really struggle because the supermarket's interested in you know a range of seven ready meals, and that's it. Mm. So so you know again, channel strategy can be the the way you the way you differentiate yourself, um, and it might be that your brand suits a particular channel much better than an, than another. And do you think again, kind of the, the, the tension with this fo- uh, focus? I suppose, when I completely agree with it, is say, for example, with COVID hip happened, you're super focused on food service, and then it falls from from underneath you, and you're, you know, I've, we've got friends who've gone through that, and it's, it sounds horrendous. Um, yeah. Do you think it's say you say you're a founder of a, of a food business like entering today's world i suppose is the best way to, to kind of look through this do you think it's better to almost dip your toes in each very like channel and then see what sticks or do you think it's better to see to say okay our competitors are doing a focusing here let's go here just but it's a bit of both and i think there's a good, a good another good example in tech there's a there's a business called doordash in in the states which is basically the american deliveroo um, and DoorDash started by finding a solution for restaurants that didn't have a delivery service in the suburbs of San Francisco. And everybody told them it wouldn't work because um, basically you've got to drive an awful long way. But in, in the suburbs, you've not got the, 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 the concentration of, of uh, population and restaurants to make it efficient enough for it to work. So what they did was find solutions that would solve that problem. So they took a niche that everyone else was ignoring, which was the suburbs, basically. And also they took a niche that everybody else was ignoring, which is restaurants that don't already deliver. Because actually a lot of these um, um, businesses in the early days, and Uber Eats and, and Delivery included, actually took over existing delivery services and just found there were marketplaces for, for, for find, matching consumers with with so, delivery services. So like delivery would take over McDonald's or something like that. Exactly. So, they, so they'd go for the smaller, smaller, almost indie restaurants per se is what they do. Yeah. So, so what DoorDash did was find a way of, of giving that group of, of restaurateurs something they could never have had in a location that they would never have expected. And that worked really, really well for them. And they, they built their business basically in stealth in the suburbs, ignoring the, the city centres because the city centres were, 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 were red seas of blood, as it were, mm, you know, mm, and, the, and, the, and the outskirts were the blue oceans um, where, they could, where they could survive, where there were no sharks. And I think that's kind of the approach I would take, which is avoid 
avoid highly competitive situations, but equally, you know, don't, I think, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's all about just making sure you're giving yourself the best chance. And, and by doing that, you, you potentially learn something new. Um, but ultimately you probably still want to play, you know, and, and ultimately DoorDash did, they, they moved into the city center, but only, uh, only from a position of strength. Mm. And I think that's kind of my, my view on all of this, which is, is yes, be unique and be different and find unique and different things, but do experiment to find where they are and what they are before you decide. Mm. And it's like, don't, don't just assume, learn, learn through iteration, learn through feedback, you know, build in lots of mechanisms to make sure that you're, you're finding those successes and building on them. Don't just assume, you know, from day one that, Oh, we're going to do this and this, this will work. Yeah. You are wrong. Uh, yeah. No, no. I love, I, this is why I love, love this so much is almost kind of the whole t- blueprint per se of, of challenger brands being thrown out the door, I, I think with this. And, and it's so interesting because people think, you know, we'll get a couple of wholesalers. We'll, um, get into a Whole Foods, we'll get then get into a, you know, and you kind of work your way up, and that's almost the the trodden path. Um, and then also with that comes the ego of like, I need more growth. I'm not, you know, I'm not good enough. We need to be pushing better. We need to be pushing better. And actually, I think what I've learned from this is if you just <laughs> bin that all off for a couple of years and fall in love with being small, falling in love with the fact that no one's, you know, building something people one and it and 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 as you said at the beginning like pushing that boulder uphill like that's the thing that's that's gonna once you get over the other side propel you forward yeah. so much and i think you know if you take examples in in of success so Gre- gray's great example you know they were not a challenger brand because there was nobody doing what gray's did it doesn't you know where does gray's sit in the market where where does it you know literally i mean the question i used to always ask about categories was where where do i put it on the shelves so where do I, as a retailer, where do I put it on the shelf? No idea. You know, we in the end, we found places to put it. But Gray's was a, a great example of a brand which grew entirely as a D2C until they eventually got to the point where they could see how they could effect, you know, effectively become a, a, a mainstream um, snack brand. And I just think there are those are the examples to follow. They're not challengers. They're unique. They're different. They have a different perspective on the world. And actually... They they're in a category of one. You know, they 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 are from day one to 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 the end of their life the the dominant player um, in the chosen category. They're just it's, it's carving out that category and and sort of you know bringing it to life, which then becomes the challenge. Mm. And how for, for listeners, if they wanted to, you know, cultivate this almost like lateral thinking, I, like I would definitely recommend reading those essays by Paul Graham and. and um, and of the wire companies, is there anything else they should be kind of reading to? Yeah, I mean, there's a few. There's, there are sort of obvious people within Silicon Valley that are worth listening. I mean, first of all, the, the great thing about Y Combinator, which is a is a is an incubator program for for Silicon Valley startups, is that they they put all their um, content online. So just go and you know on YouTube, you can watch every single um, Y Combinator lecture, um, some by Paul Graham in the early days, and and others later by by other people within the organization all of all of which is massively valuable content mm. there are people like peter thiel there are um, mark andreessen there are you know there are sort of noble um silicon valley um uh, gurus who who will will talk around a lot of this stuff um reed hoffman there's, there's all sorts of people i think i think there's 
the lessons though is are 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 even though they're all about software startups because they really are there's a little bit of hardware startup but it's still technology hardware mm, mm. um you know i just think you've just got to then think back and, and reapply to, to the world that we're in and food and drink works differently it's a physical product that people consume and therefore you've got to sit think how does that therefore work mm. um for me and all i would say is that you know that inverted pyramid start at the very tip at the bottom with something constrained and small and learn lots iterate loads until you know the answers, whether that be what product it is, what brand it is, what channel you, you succeed in, and then grow that and find ways of growing. The things that you couldn't scale, you've then got to scale, got to find ways mm. of scale. Mm. Mm. And ultimately, the, 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 the answer, by the way, is that you become that sort of dominant single player in a market you've created for yourself. And then it's all about maintaining your position and driving forwards MPD and innovation you know, as if you were still small. And that that's actually a completely different challenge as a big business. How do you maintain that sort of ability to remain small in some way? And that's the sort of challenge that businesses like Amazon have done an amazing job of, of, of uh, solving. Mm. Amazing. Uh, conscious of your time, Chris, there's kind of one more thing I want to explore, um, which again is back to, back to Paul Graham. And um, Paul's got an essay called Be a Maker, Not a Manager. Um and I think there's there's no exemplar of this better than yourself. You know, you've you've kind of done the manager schedule, booth CEO, CEO for 19 years. Then you've um, been director of uh, food and home at Harris. You've been on this on this manager's schedule, right? And now you're a maker in 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 malt release radar. Um, but in this essay, uh, or for what I've taken from it, is essentially Paul saying, you know. Um, if you're a manager, you, you you kind of interrupt. You've got so many meetings that interrupts deep work, but and and it kind of like what I wanted to explore is from your time at Booths and Harrods. What are the? How has your sort of week and day changed as you've moved to more of a maker's schedule? <laughs> Hardly at all. Um, no, uh, really. <laughs> I can't no, no, it's moved. My, I can't imagine a more radical shift, probably from Harrods to to, to a malt release radar. If I'm honest, so. At Harrods, my my day um, started at sort of seven thirty. I had um, an hour to do the two hundred emails that I hadn't done the day before before going to bed, and then I had eleven back to back hour long meetings with, if I was lucky, quarter of an hour for lunch, and then I uh, sort of you know bleary eyed walked out of the building. Um, about sort of half past six, seven o'clock at night. And then if I'm really honest, tried my very level best not to think about it until the following morning. And it was just back-to-back solid meetings. Um, and my PA would come in with the, the she would knock on my door with three minutes for, to the next meeting to, to effectively warn people that it was going to, this meeting was going to finish. And then with one minute to go, those people would be out and the agenda and any notes I had for the next meeting were in front of me and I just carried on. I mean, it was it was the most managerial of manager um, schedules you could possibly have. All of those meetings are um, organizationally driven. So it's all, you know, and it's all to do with approval and hierarchy and and and, and how you how you run the business and big organization. It's a two billion pound business. It's a big organization with you know seven thousand staff, lots going on, lots to to organize. You don't get any time to think 
and you don't get any time to do you simply communicate and you you know and it's all around the 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 the, the art of delegation and 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 you know and, and and look it's a it's a it is a skill and it does yeah it does work by the way because parrot is is a, is a highly functional organization that 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 absolutely delivers its customer promise however when i'm now working i have you know often two or three days where i would have no meetings at all and i will simply build i will make software I'll talk and communicate with a few people when we need to or or be on chat um you know on slack or something like that and and there's there's communication but actually it's it's deep thought it's uninterrupted it's focused and it's on building something and it's you know it, I know lots of people in in our world probably don't respect software in quite the way that I do but you know it's a thing of beauty if it's done well and I'm actually in the business of producing some luxury software as far as I'm concerned and therefore mm-hmm. I want to be pixel perfect and and absolutely you know um, superb to use and easy to use etc and and that brings out all sorts of creativity it brings out all sorts of strategic thinking it makes you um uh, appreciate a, a different pace of life and a different approach and i just think you know if going back going back to the food and drink maker not manager yeah there is something about the early days of making which which i think is so important to fundamentally bring people back to what this is all about and you know creating an amazing product that tastes incredible that people love you know takes time and effort and and energy and it it can't be done through meetings mm. no i love that um amazing and i think there's i'll wrap it up there there's just so much to take from it i think the main thing for me is it's kind of throwing out the rule book of what everyone thinks challenger brand. Well, even the name challenger brand is, is nebulous in the sense that, you know, is that really what, what we're doing or are we trying to create something completely new? Um, so I think, think, think for me, you know, like throwing away your ego, like you don't have to grow as quickly as you think, you know, you don't have to go for one of those big, big listings. Um, you know, it's, it's fall in love with being small is the main thing. And I think um, lots of people listening to this will be, listening to grow 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 scale 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 and actually i think for me just just stop and fall in love with being small yeah and you look there's a time for grow 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 scale 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 and it is you know as i said in the end you you win through distribution i'm not naive the Mm. food business is a distribution business it's about getting your product in front of consumers in some form and the more consumers you get it in front of the more likely it will it will be a success so I'm not, you know, I, I do believe in that. I just think too many founders at, at the early stages rush into that having got it wrong and then ultimately fail. And and I think that there's something about putting the brakes on and getting it right before you scale and that's it. And if you do that, then then I think, you know, it, it, they're different skill sets and they require different types of, of, of um, individuals sometimes, but it, it, it it's entirely possible to be small and get it right and ultimately be big and and have got it right amazing chris thank you so so much i really appreciate it thank you so so much for listening to the podcast i really really do appreciate it 
if you like that episode only if you liked it please do give it five stars subscribe tell all your friends families foes next door but one cat dog whatever please tell everyone about this podcast it means the world to me and i really want to understand what your pain points are as the new wave of of challenger food and drink brands please do hit me up on linkedin search dan pope and hopefully we can together create a more meaningful and powerful podcast for the next wave of challenger food and drink brands thank you so much Thank you.